are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So back to the book of Job we go for another Sunday. Last week I made the observation that while the first two chapters of the book are written in prose and picture a steadfast, long-suffering Job, at the beginning of chapter 3 it shifts to poetry, where the book remains until partway through the final chapter, chapter 42, when it shifts back to prose again. That's over 40 chapters of poetry compared to just two and a half chapters of prose. And if you read just the prose, just the opening two chapters and the closing section of the final chapter, you actually have a picture of a patient, just, unflinchingly faithful Job, who is vindicated for his long-suffering faithfulness. But, inserted between the opening and closing sections, we hear Job complain, agonize, rage, assert, and challenge God to show him what he has done to deserve the mess that his life is in. He's suffering and suffering badly. And so along come these three friends, the three comforters, they're called, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They sit quietly with Job for seven full days, after which he opens his mouth and protests that he is innocent. He's done nothing to deserve this mess that he's in. Ah, not so fast, the three friends protest. And one after another, they set out their basic airtight theological framework which can be summed up as follows. One, God rewards the good and punishes the wicked. Two, you are clearly suffering, Job, and being punished for something. Three, therefore, you must have acted wickedly. Repent and be restored, full stop. And they do that for the better part of 28 chapters, back and forth with Job. But that won't do it. For dear old Job, who the prose section has gone to great lengths to show as a righteous man, a just man. So for the better part of those 30 chapters, Job stubbornly protests his innocence. How can I be in this mess if God is good? Show your face, God. Tell me where I've gone wrong. Show me why I have lost everything. Well, that's the shape of the book up through chapter 32. The three comforters fall silent, actually, as chapter 32 begins, at which point another figure, Elihu, appears. And he sets in with a slightly different tack, saying, God is greater than any mortal, so just surrender, Job. On Job's part, there is no answer to Elihu whatsoever. But then chapter 38 arrives with a rather powerful beginning. 
Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Well, what Paul read tonight comes from the whirlwind. We heard words like, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have an understanding. Or, Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Who are you, Job? How dare you? Right through chapters 38 and 39, that voice continues saying, essentially, who's made all things that are? Could you do this, Job? Do you have the slightest idea of what makes the world what it is? Well, there's a moment as chapter 40 begins that Job tries to surrender. He says, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, I'll proceed no further. Yet that isn't quite enough. I mean, he's surrendering, but it's only partial. And so the voice of God thunders on for the better part of two more chapters until Job finally surrenders. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, looking ahead to next week's reading from the book, our final chapter from Job, Job's restoration begins. I'm just going to touch on that restoration and leave things off until next week when it will be Helen Kennedy standing here to preach. She may well pick up on the story. I don't know. I'm not going to tell her. What I do want, though, tonight is to pick up on the strange resolution of the interchange between Job and his God as it's set out in this dense and unusual biblical book. In 1947, C.S. Lewis brought a book into print in memory of his late friend, Charles Williams. The book was entitled Essays Presented to Charles Williams, and it included essays by Lewis himself, J.R.R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield, Dorothy Sayers, among others. And in the preface to that book, Lewis remembers an exchange he'd had with Charles Williams. And so he writes, If a human wanted to carry its hot complaints to the very throne of heaven, even that, Williams felt, would be a permitted absurdity. For was that not very much what Job had done? It was true, Williams added, that the divine answer had taken the surprising form of inviting Job to study the hippopotamus and the crocodile. But Job's impatience had been approved, his apparent blasphemies accepted. The weight of the divine displeasure had been reserved for the comforters, the self-appointed advocates on God's side. The people who tried to show that all was well. The sort of people 
Williams said, immeasurably dropping his lower jaw and fixing me with his eyes, the sort of people who wrote books on the problem of pain. It's too easy, Williams was saying, to try to make sense out of everything in a world that is often beyond that kind of good sense. Consider the hippopotamus, called the behemoth in Job 40. Consider the crocodile, the leviathan of Job 41. Can you even fathom these creatures, Job? And yet his impatience has been approved in the end. His apparent blasphemies accepted. And the wrath of God is reserved for the three comforters who had so blithely trotted out their theological views and in the end are shown as shallow, hollow, and in need of Job's prayers. William's line about Lewis's well-known book, The Problem of Pain, is not without its own power either. As Lewis himself, 10, 15 years later, would have to face when his own life came to pieces in the slow dying of his beloved wife, Joy. Sometimes we don't know nearly so much as we think we know. I'm put to mind here of Jesus' struggle to have his poor disciples get his core message into their often too thick skulls. In today's Gospel reading, James and John come forward asking Jesus to do for us whatever we ask of you, which when you think about it is a heck of a thing to ask. And Jesus said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Hmm. You don't know what you're asking, he says to them. Are you ready to drink this cup and be baptized in the way that will happen to me? Sure, sure we are, sure we are. Oh, my brothers, you don't have a clue. Meanwhile, The other disciples, the other ten, are getting furiously mad with James and John, though perhaps they're only getting mad because James and John had dared to ask the question first, the question they really wanted to ask themselves. So Jesus sits the whole gang down and once again tries to teach them what he is all about. He says, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. Their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, their heads nod up and down. Yes, yes, Jesus, of course, of course. 
but they're still as clouded in their understanding as were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar in the story of Job. Those disciples are working with these airtight sorts of religious systems, which frankly won't do when it comes to Jesus, much less to this very real and so often so complicated world in which we live. Sure, sure, Jesus, we understand, but who gets the good seats in your glory? Steve Bell has often told the story of a dream he had many years ago, which I think slices straight to the heart of what is on the table tonight. It was a dream he dreamed at the time of the Ethiopian famine, so probably sometime around 1987. In the dream, Steve was in what seemed an eternal space, filled with countless people, millions of people. He was sitting in the lap of God, in God's arms, not because he deserved it, but because it was simply his turn to be there. Looking out, he could sense no distance between people. It was warm, quiet, a beautiful space filled with millions of people, Yet distance meant nothing. All he had to do was think about someone or speak to someone, and they were right there, close to him. Then as he tells the story, he heard someone weeping. It was a woman. She just stood up in that endless space and began to tell the story of her son, who was in terrible trouble with his addictions and on the verge of death. Steve sensed God nodding in acknowledgement, but no word spoken. One after another, people began to stand up and speak of the crying, aching needs in the lives of the people whom they loved. Each time, there was just that same wordless acknowledgement from God. At some point, an Ethiopian man stood up and begged for help for his people, his country. And again, God simply nodded. Steve tells a story. He says he found himself getting angrier and angrier at this lack of any real meaningful response. As he recalls the dream, he says he's no longer, he no longer cherished being there, but instead wanted to climb down to the ground. And then he felt a tear fall. He felt it fall and splash him. And everyone heard wordlessly, but they heard, if you knew what I know, you'd sit still. If you knew what I know, you'd sit still. It's a strange consolation, but a consolation all the same. You can't possibly understand. Not this, not now. You can't understand, but you might be able to feel God's tear as it falls. And maybe for now, that's enough. So we hear these stories of Job in his struggles and his fish shaking and then in his being humbled in the presence of the holy.
of James and John, give us the best seats, we can do it, sure we can, of Steve feeling just so oppressed and yet in the end freed by the splash of a tear and that voice. And hopefully we can begin to cope with the fact that there is more going on than meets the eye. Sometimes that's not easy. And so sometimes our own presuppositions will come lurching forward to try to take over and make life and the world and God and Jesus just a bit easier to swallow. Couldn't it be tidier? But sometimes we hear the stories and we find in them a kind of consolation that says, we, I, don't need to have it all figured out. Because in the long run, I know I can trust that this God is faithful. Even if that long run can feel very, very long indeed. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.